that took apart all my toys really pissed off my parents when you know they buy me stuff for christmas or birthday or whatever and two days later it's lying in a pile of uh parts and they're wondering if i'm gonna get it put back together again kind of thing um but no my it was actually i i can thank my father for this right the fact that i'm into computers at all because when i was like four he was an accountant of all things and it, so process that for a second an accountant who's who got me started as a hacker um but no he he worked for this company and they were changing accounting systems and so over the holiday when they were shut down anyway was when he was going to make the conversion right you know it's christmas time they're shut down through the end of the year perfect time convert everything cut over you know january 1st the way accountants like to do things and so rather than sit in an empty office he brought this big zenith heathkit computer home with him and you know plops it down and he so he's like pioneering work from home first of all i mean we're talking early 80s here yeah i'm that old by the way um but no so he uh you know he, he did that and, and when he wasn't working on it he you know let me play video games on it and that was the start well then i was fortunate enough that in in school we had a computer lab and i started getting real cursory knowledge of basic programming at 12 though i saved up and bought myself my first computer so we're talking, you know, this would have been very, very late 80s before, you know, PCs were not commonplace in people's homes. Um, so a little weird that a 12-year-old kid is saving up her cash and buying a computer, uh, of all things. Um, but yeah, so got a computer, later got a modem, later found my way into Prodigy through maybe less than ideal circumstances. Um, less than ideal for them. It was ideal for me because I wasn't paying, um, which if anyone remembers, I mean, God, I'm dating myself again by even using the word prodigy. <laughs> like, so, like, shit. No, what it doesn't that? even matter because, I mean, I'm looking at the screen and you look 22, so, so I don't want to hear it. I love the flattery. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, like, is it the lighting? I don't know. You just look amazing, first of all. I'm actually like twice that, but you know. Oh my God. Well, um, you look amazing. You got it. You got it. it That's skincare. It Give me your skincare regimen. I am loving right. this already. This is, we can keep this up all day. Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's finally said because Mike's like well older than everyone else. So don't worry about it. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Just <laughs> I remember, I remember Prodigy. I actually, my first disc was with a Micron computer and it was a Prodigy disc that came with it. So I'm right there with you on that that i think it came I, actually i'm not even 100 sure if mine came with the computer or if i got it somewhere else but yeah i mean you remember those days like for those of you who don't remember before we had the internet and we had these goofy online communities that you just dialed directly into i mean it was they mailed you discs in the mail all the time first it was you'd get five and a quarters then later they were three and a half eventually you know they went to cds when cd-roms were you know prevalent but yeah, I don't even remember how I got it. But so I taught myself programming. I, I got into hacking like UART and stuff like that and broke at into 12. some stuff that you were doing. At, yeah, at 12 years old, which by the way, was kind of fun too, because you didn't have the internet to like go Google stuff. You had to, like, I was literally going to the library and checking out books on modems and things like that. <laughs> um, it was, you know, you did discovering even what software like, you know, terminal tools that you could use just to kind of monitor the, the serial port and be able to in, inject into the serial port was kind of interesting. But yeah, so I did that at 12. 
still for whatever reason had no clue that that could be a career um i started as a pre-med major believe it or not after but then three all it took was three semesters of college level chemistry and i'm like peace out i am not doing this <laughs> don't want this i'm not bad enough anyway to to go through the hell that is you know pre-med and then med school so bailed on that and i'm like well i gotta find a major so i found my way into computer science got a job as a programmer because now we're talking dot-com era and uh i actually was a programmer for nine years before someone from our security team came to me and said hey how would you like to join our pen test team and i still didn't really connect it i'm like i don't know what pen testing i don't know what that is or how to do it and she's like oh you're smart you'll figure it out well yeah, I got in there after, I mean, I was a programmer. So obviously AppSec was kind of right up my alley. You know, hacking web apps was great. Um, got into that and God, do I have some horrific stories of what goes on in some really bad financial services apps from back then. Um, but uh, yeah, and that, I mean, and that's the career now. Like, you know, so I did pen testing for a long time. I worked in a number of different consulting orgs. Uh, always kind of a focus on AppSec, just because, again, the programming background. Um, Roundabout, what would it have been, 2015, I think, whenever Acuvant and Fishnet merged, because I worked for Fishnet at the time, I actually got into a different role in application security, working for a company called Aspect Security, some of you might remember, um, and I led their program services practice. So now it wasn't, I wasn't hacking things anymore. It was, you know, go work with these high level, you know, CISOs, VPs, whoever, who are trying to figure out how to build an application security program across like their 9,000 apps or whatever they got, you know, I exaggerate, but um, yeah. And so suddenly started working at those levels, which was kind of an interesting, uh, you know, new perspective on things. And, you know, over a couple of years, whatever, did a couple of different things. I worked for a product company last year called Sneak. Uh, so they do a lot of stuff in open source security, uh, SBOM type stuff, which of course is getting a lot of publicity right now. And um, at the beginning of this year, I jumped into a big career shift. I am um, now the business information security officer for a company called SP Global. Some of you might remember a company called Standard and Poor's. That's who we are. Um, and so I work, I, I lead the security strategy, whatever you want to call it, for their ratings division. So we're responsible for like credit ratings of large organizations, uh, governments. You know, you, you look in the news, you'll see released some, some uh, credit updates on Australia a couple of weeks ago, things like that. So kind of a it's a weird perspective now because I wake up in the morning and like in the news is my company, <laughs> you know, which that, that's a, that's a big shift from where I was, but, uh, you feel the pressure. Oh, there's definitely pressure. Yeah. Believe me. And, and anytime there's like a, a security incident or anything, it doesn't matter how minor it is. It's like you're immediately, your mind is like, okay, is this thing going to end up in the news somewhere? You know, I really don't want to wake up tomorrow and see my company being splashed in headlines. Um, <laughs> so there's there's definitely that pressure for sure. So one of the one of the things I watched not too long ago and I rewatched over and over again was your TED talk. Yeah. So the TED talk I found really interesting because we have the same conversations about 
the industry about you know the the supposed skills gap that doesn't exist and the way that we hire people um and you made some really interesting comments um my thought about the skills gap and and they probably align with yours quite well is the fact that i see companies promoting middle management or, or mid-level to management and they're not bringing the entry levels up and that's killing those entry levels there's no entry level jobs but when you see an entry level job they want the amount of experience that the guy who just left that seat had maybe five years you know it, it's it's ridiculous um so I, I watched that ted talk and and you know start thinking about it a little bit more and i found another part that was really interesting was about the uh, technology, right? So, so the outdated technology, they wanted, you know, 10 years experience on an application or, you know, some sort of technology only lasted six years. So that, that to me was, was pretty, pretty shocking. Um, so you did some research on that, quite a bit of research. Uh, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, so start of 2020, um, I actually started working on a book that, Sadly, my, my uh, publisher is, if they're watching right now, they were like, girl, get your last two chapters done. Come on. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, pandemic put me woefully behind. I hate it. I hate it. It's a lot of pressure, but I'm working on a book. Uh, I started it. So at the beginning of 2020, uh, for the, the book, by the way, is meant to be a guide to help people into cybersecurity and not just the typical, you know, everybody thinks of pen testing all the time as like the path in, but really broaden and look at all areas, what is cybersecurity. And so I did a couple things. First, I launched a, a pair of surveys. One was geared toward people who are trying to launch a career. So I call them the, the aspiring security professionals. Um, so that's like, you know, people who are in college or recently graduated trying to get into this industry or Conversely, other, you know, there are people who are trying to pivot from other roles into security. Um, and then the second one was for experienced people, people who had been in security for at least a year and had some experience. So I, I gathered a lot of information, what their experiences were with job search, what they saw as problems, blockers, challenges. I also interviewed hiring managers and recruiters because I wanted to understand that side of it better. And you know, as I mentioned in my TEDx talk, it was like, I started thinking like at first, like I'm going to find the problem. I'm going to find what the job searchers are doing wrong. Like, obviously, you know, if these people can't find jobs, because like you, I'm hearing these stories of, you know, 4 million jobs, woe is us, you know, all these open positions. And it's like, wait, but I've got all these hundreds of other people telling me they can't find a job. But do, you, do you not think that the open positions are not all entry-level positions are there? A lot of the open positions are for like, the more experienced technologies. So I was talking, maybe it was on this podcast before, actually, like, I think the skills gap is going to be like at the top end of the market or in like emerging technologies. So like testing 5G or that in that in kind of that area, there might be a skills gap. But yeah, I mean, there probably is some skills gap. But unfortunately, a lot of what's there is self inflicted, right? I mean, it's our hiring practices suck. And that's what I found. So I, you know, I've I interviewed, when I started talking to recruiters and hiring managers, and I got the results back from the survey, what I realized is, yeah, there's a bigger issue here. So I started researching job descriptions because there's lots of rumblings on Twitter and stuff about, you know, people complaining all the time about bad job descriptions. And that was eye-opening. I mean, that's where I started seeing things like people, you know, a company that wanted somebody with 10 years of experience in Kubernetes. Yo, dude. <laughs> 
<laughs> it ain't been around that long. Come on. Um, you know, or just one of the other ones that I call out in the TEDx talk is this idea how many of these jobs listings, you know, especially those that proclaim to be entry level, are asking for a CISP. Like you want a CISSP, you got to have five years of experience. The other problem is if you look at this, there, you know, nine, I think it was 91% of the job descriptions I looked at called for a CISSP. There are two and a half million, according to ISC squared, there's two and a half million security professionals in the world. And we know already they're using like a pretty liberal definition of what a security professional is at this point. Of those 145,000 have a CISSP. So do the math on that. Those percents don't work out. 90 some percent versus like 4%. Yeah, come on. And so I started seeing that kind of thing. And yeah, it's frustrating because it's like you said, Mike, it, we spend so much time looking for, we think everybody's got to have this super high skill level coming in the door. Every company out there is doing that where we, we feel like, well, cybersecurity is so critical. We have to hire you know, people with tons of experience and whatever that we miss the boat. You know, security is about problem solving and problem solving gets better when you have people with a lot of different perspectives and backgrounds. And that means you got to invest in people who don't have a cybersecurity background. You want to bring them in and, you know, you can teach them how many, how many hiring managers you say, you do you hear say things like, oh, I can, I can teach anybody the technical skills. I want somebody with passion, right? I, I hear that all the time. I got that result in my survey a bunch. But they don't yet, necessarily do it. Right. We don't, we don't hire that way. And in fact, like, how do you even expect, tell somebody you need to have passion, but what does that even mean? How, I do, think you, how do I put my passion on a resume so I was that your say, recruiter will quite, even pass it to you? It's probably quite difficult to get through like the first round of an interview process though, because they have to do like a CV sift and how, yeah, like you said, how do you put, prove that you've got passion on, yeah. an, on a, on a piece of paper? And that's the thing, right? So for legality reasons, compliance reasons, and other things, we structure job descriptions in a really specific way. And, you know, we, we put requirements in there and they are kind of checkboxy things. And we expect the recruiters at the first level to, you know, check those checkboxes off and say, all right, they meet this, they meet this, they don't meet this. And they'll make a decision whether or not to pass that resume on. Then we got even better and we started creating automated tools like the, the applicant tracking systems, the ATS where now that goes through and, and does some checks and scores you and says, hey, this is how this person scores. And so if that doesn't detect the right things, you get scored low and the recruiter might not even look at that resume, let alone pass it on to a hiring manager. Not so even that's that, one of the but... things I, you know, I mentioned in the TEDx talk too, is just, we got to give people, we got to look at different things. We, we have to look at different skills. It's not about, do you have this you know, unicorn mixture of the exact technologies that we happen to use in our organization. And that's, what's going to make you a fit. It's, do you have these like other skills that kind of transcend all of that and maybe transcend industries altogether and make you a good candidate? So, I mean, in that, that talk, I brought up two examples. One was a person that I hired who had worked in nothing but retail. And I talked about how I connected some of the skills that he had from working in retail to what I needed in a security professional. The other one I use, and for the, the folks over the pond in the UK, this might cause you to cringe a little because I know there was a, a different use of this metaphor that wasn't popular, but I, I do talk about a barista. 
and how a barista say like working at Starbucks or something, I, I can draw the exact equation from barista at Starbucks to sake analyst, right? And, and that's the thing is recognizing, okay, what skill sets did you get over there that apply here? And then make sure you have the te technical aptitude that I know I can teach you the technologies I want you to know. Yeah, it's, it's really frustrating too. And, and I won't dive off too far into it. The certification process is a joke as well. Um, you know, a lot of those certs are, you know, hey, I can pass a test. And guess what, I have a cert, it doesn't mean anything to me. So what I did as a, as a SOC director was started to bring people in and throw the certs out the window. I don't care about your cert because anybody can test and study a pool of answers and pass a test. So I put together what I called the gauntlet, right? A virtual lab environment, you know, you hack this box, you know, show me, show me the, the loot that you got from this box and then present it, you know, write up a report and present it to me as you would a client. And to me, that's important, but the certification industry has gone so far the opposite direction. And even like DOD, DOD requires you have a CEH plus two SAN certs in order to just get a job. And here's, here's my, here's my argument with that. There are more kids on Fortnite that have a better skill set to be an analyst than most of these people see as this piece. And we're only focusing on these people that can present themselves in a suit and tie and say, here's my resume and communicate that. When this 10 year old kid over here can run circles around all of us and we're not, we're not hiring that way. Yeah. Another thing that we talked about, I was on a, a podcast earlier this week, a, a panel for Gary Berman and the cyber hero network or whatever. And uh, one of the questions was, is the government hiring ex-hackers? Well, not really, because it's hard for us to pass a drug test and it's hard for us to pass a background check. Um, but there are companies out there who look past that. Uh, and I really appreciate those companies. I actually work for one that, that looks past the background and says, hey, look, we know you can do the job. We've seen your work. Good to go. But that doesn't solve the entry-level problem. And I think the entry-level problem is we need to really focus on what's truly entry level. And a certification, requesting certification on entry level is bullshit because how many people can afford a $5,000 SANS boot camp for an entry level cert to get a soft job? Nobody. I, I couldn't. I still can't. And I, I'm a professional. Um, so, what are your thoughts on, on certification and the way that we've kind of, I guess, bastardized the, the certification process in order to make money? Um, within the certification industry. Yeah, I mean, it, it is incredible to me what certs have turned into. And I mean, it, and it's been there for a long time, right? I mean, it, and it's not just been cybersecurity. Like I remember back to the early 2000s when MCSE was the big thing and all the companies who were hiring or who were launching 21 day boot camps to get your MCSE. And all I can remember is working with a person who we hired, not me, Definitely not my choice, uh, but who they hired, who came in having completed a 21-day boot camp as part of their, um, you know, their uh, their overall uh, degree program. And the thing I remember most about this person was I remember one of my peers coming to me and telling me the story about how he had emailed this person a uh, just a, a command line tool to, for whatever he was working on or whatever. And he got a call back from the person saying, I, I can't figure out how to get this to run. It's not working, whatever. And he goes over to his desk and he finds out, you know, he's sitting there just double clicking out of the email and wondering, you know, and of course the command 
window pops up, goes away right away, you know, and didn't this MCSE certified individual didn't even understand, you know, what a command line tool was and how to launch that. So, you know, it, it's existed for a long time. And I think, you know, the way I've always approached certifications is they're much better used as maybe a, a certain, I guess, justification of your kind of your commitment to your career or things like that. So like, I've got a CISM, right? It's the only, I've had, I've had the CEH, I've had the ECSA, I've had uh, a GPEN from SANS and uh, the CISM. The CISM is the only one I keep. And the reason I keep that one is because it's one of those that doesn't typically get used as, oh, this proves you have the skill. No, it, it demonstrates that I've been in the industry for a while because like the CISSP, it requires five years of experience to get it. And it's more about demonstrating that I, even though I may not get to practice it all the time, I understand this wide breadth of you know, different domains across security. And I like that it's approached that way. The problem is, to your point, when we leverage those security certifications as like justification that you have a certain level of technical skill, that becomes really problematic first and foremost. Um, you know, I mean, some are better than others, right? Uh, you, you mentioned uh, the, the CEH produced by that company that shall not be named because I have a history with them. Um, which you, if you follow me on Twitter, you know about that too. Um, but, uh, you know, versus something like at least the OSCP, or at least the OSCP is based in like, you're going to demonstrate this stuff. So you were talking about this lab before the whole thing is, and it's not easy, right? I mean, I know very skilled hackers who are complaining that they can't pass that test or they fail it at least the first time and whatever. I, hey, that's kind of how it should be if you're going to use that as a measure of skill set because now it's not about just memorizing. But the other part of it, to your point, is the fact that so many of these certs are unattainable unless you've got a particular, uh, you know, your organization's gonna pay for that. And as we talked about before, many of them aren't. So yeah, I mean, SANS is up like seven grand now if you're paying out of pocket as a single person, you, you, you're paying seven grand to get the training and the cert. That's completely unattainable. It's, a, it's um, absurd. Know, it's absolutely yeah. absurd. But then when you take like, so take, take other certs, for example, right? When I first got the CEH, that was version 1.0. It, it literally just came out and I just challenged the test and, and took it and thought, what a fucking joke. Like I literally just walked through this test. So then I challenged like four sand certs in one day. And they came back and said, oh, well, you passed the, the exams, but we think you cheated because you took four in one day. So we're going to put you before the audit committee. And I thought, this is bullshit. I mean, you're like strong arming people to get these certs. And another thing, too, is uh, I, I, I've heard other companies and other employers say, well, if people don't have a cert and they want to join our company, we're going to pay for their cert, but we're going to lock them into a four year contract. Now, to me, that's bullshit. I mean, that's like indentured servitude. You know, we're going to give you this, but you're going to owe us. Yeah. You know I mean, leveraging a job qualification to, to fix your employee retention issues, that, that should be a huge no-no. And that should be a red flag to anybody. I mean, I, I get, you know, the mindset, of course, is we've done that for years and years with tuition reimbursement, right? You, you get tuition reimbursement for your four-year program, and now you have to stay for one year 
uh, two years, three years. I think most are one year, and I think there might even be a legal reason for that. But, and if you don't, we prorate and you have to pay back a certain amount of that. But if you're leveraging it, that's like employee development, right? I mean, that's not a thing that you're saying in order to get this job, you have to have a degree. And so we're going to sponsor you to get a degree. If you're going to do that, if you're going to say the only way you can have this job is if you agree to go get this training that we're going to certify or that we're going to sponsor for you to then turn around and say, well, and now in order to do that, you have to sign off on a commitment to be here for X number of years, or you have to pay us back for that training. That's baloney. That, that is job training. That is not employee development at that point. And that's different. You know, the, the employee development thing, that's voluntary. And that's something that somebody's doing for their future. You're going to say that this is required training or it's training that's going to make you better in your current role, then that's not something that you should be expecting, you know, money back if they leave too soon or something. Um, you know, the reality is companies are afraid. We, oh, what if we train them and they, you know, now suddenly they're worth so much more on the open market. We can't pay them that amount. And so they leave. Well, uh, sir, they- sir Bronson made a good point. He said, treat your people and train your people to leave the company, but treat them so they won't want to. And I think a lot of companies are missing that. They are. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I think back to years and years and years ago, there was a little cartoon and it was, you know, I think it was supposed to be like a CIO talking to, you know, a manager or something. And he says, well, what if we, what if we train these people and they leave? And the other guy says, well, what if we don't train them and they stay? Like, literally, that's it. So what, you want to keep untrained individuals because you basically incented them not to take training by saying, now you have to commit to being here four years in a market where the average job, uh, I think the average tenure in a job is like under two years, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, so you, you disincented them to take that training. Like, why, why would I do that if I'm going to, you know, have to pay it back after a couple of years and I can't leave the company. You know, I mean, that's, that's silly. So, you know, think about what that does and you want to be encouraging people. You, I mean, it's, unfortunately, it's part of a bigger issue, of course, and I don't think we want to go down this rabbit hole, but, you know, companies putting profitability on the backs of their employees rather than improving their business model. Absolutely. So Unicorn Project, the guy who wrote the Phoenix Project, uh, the follow-up book, Unicorn Project, touches directly on that. Um, for you, you guys who haven't read that, it's a pretty good book. Uh, it starts out with a lady who's an engineer and she's on vacation. And while she's on vacation, the payroll system goes down and goes, you know, tits up and, and nobody gets a paycheck. Well, then she's on vacation. They blame it on her and move her to the Unicorn Project. So basically they're using her as, as the fall guy. Um, which I see it in a lot of companies, you know, it's, it's not about training people. I think what we have overall is more of a people problem. Cybersecurity is a people problem. It's not technology. Technology advances. There's innovation. Hackers create new types of technology and progress things along. Where we fail is connecting with people. Um, and I've preached about this in my talks, I don't know how many times, is that if you don't sit down and encourage the people that, you, that work for you, and don't treat them like an employee, but treat them as a person and find interest in their personal life. What do you find interesting outside of work? What can I do to help you achieve your next goal? What, you don't want to work here your entire life? What can I do to help you get to the next company? What, what can I do to prepare you? 
And that's what people have done my whole entire career. So we recently had on one of my former bosses from Verizon, and he was exactly that way. He said, Mike, what is it that you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I'm fresh out of the military and, you know, I've worked in one sock already. This is my second. I eventually want to get back to the red side. I, I want to go back into pen testing. And they prepared me for that. But I don't think enough of that's going on. You know, people are so wrapped up in, in dollars and, you know, the percentages and, and, you know, looking at staffing. But what they're, what they're failing to realize is you take that mindset and that revolving door keeps revolving and you're not going to retain people. Military, in the DOD, when I was a, a SIGINT analyst, an operator during, a, you know, two wars, the, the problem that we had was retention, Right. So people would get these security clearances with a TSSCI polygraph like I had, deuces out, I'm taking my, my, my security clearance and I'm quadrupling my pay yeah. because work they're not going to- sector, work for a contractor. Exactly. A lot of money. Yeah. And that, that's, the way, that's the way it goes. And when you treat people like an employee, that's what they're looking for. They're not looking to connect with you any longer. They're looking on how to increase their pay. Um, and it's just a shitty, a shitty environment altogether. And you can't, you can't defeat a cybersecurity problem, a global problem that we're having right now, a cybersecurity pandemic, um, by treating people like numbers. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. I, I wish you could see my t-shirt because I'm wearing like apparently the perfect t-shirt for this conversation. It says hacking human problems, um, which is the reality. It is. You know, I mean, that, that is what we do on a day-to-day basis. And that honestly, so it's a shirt that I actually created that for that reason, because it's like, you know, I was doing a talk series last year on deep fakes. I had done a lot of research into deep fakes. I spoke at RSA and a lot of other conferences last year about it. And, um, you know, what I kind of the way I wrapped up that talk, my conclusion was, look, here's all this research that's going on in deep fakes and deep fake detection and everything else. But at the end of the day, deep, the, the threats from deep fakes aren't about the technology. People. There's issues there, but that, the threats are about the disinformation side of it. And that disinformation, that's a people problem. Mm-hmm. Combating misinformation is a people issue, not a technology issue. And that's what we miss a lot here is, I mean, think about how often do we say, well, you know, the, the users are our, our biggest vulnerability, and that's not necessarily untrue, but we try to fix that problem with really bad ideas of awareness programs or right. with software. We right. don't we take- really look at it holistically and try to address it, you know, at, at a, a level that looks at culture and things of that nature because, well, you know, culture is hard. Yeah. And, and, and I see that every day when I go into like different companies is the fact that, you know, when I first got into like a management role, um, I would walk in and, and I noticed that people would, you know, they, they related me to security and eventually, you know, quickly they took a defensive and they, they don't like security people because they hinder operations. So my next position, I thought, okay, I'm a director. I'm going to make a point to go to every group every morning and say hello and sit down and just talk to them and find out, you know, what are their pain points in their group? What can I do to help enable them so that they can help me? And it helps, you know, if, if you go around and, and you try to communicate and spread that word, people are more apt to help out. And we, we've had this long history of the users are stupid. Um, the people are the weakest link, but they don't have to be the weakest link. They can be the strongest link. 
if you treat them in a positive way, like phishing campaigns, for instance, instead of blasting who failed the phishing campaign, why not make it, you know, something positive? You know, I, I think that, you know, from day one in security, we've, we've gotten to this habit of we are the end all be all of everything in the company and people hate that. So I'm trying to reverse that and bring everybody into security and make it a holistic view, you know, give everybody a chance to participate in security. And that gives them kind of an empowerment. Yeah, I think I said it on the last podcast when we were talking about like the CTO, the CISO reporting to the CTO. And I said, that's a lot of bullshit, basically, because the CISO needs to sit on the board because it's a company wide issue. It's not an IT issue. Um, like it's something that needs to be pervasive in, across the entire organization. So we've just touched on a reason why I love my current job. So this is one of the things that's really great about being a business information security officer is that I am part of the business. I am not part of the CISO organization. I am not in some centralized function. I'm embedded in that area where the money gets made. Because let's be honest, and I have this conversation with my centralized security team. Like, you know, we all go home if the business doesn't function. And that's, you know, sorry, but the CEOs, they get that. And they understand that like, look, push comes to shove. If I'm deciding between getting a new product out the door or, you know, implementing some advanced cybersecurity initiative, I'm picking that product every time because that product's going to bring me revenue. And this is something I preach with people. I, I've given talks on this, like just that, that need to be able to competently as security folks walk into an executive meeting, walk into a board meeting, or just even make a proposal to you know, someone, you know, uh, uh, someone in your leadership chain and understand how to motivate them by connecting what your security initiative is gonna do to make the business better. And you know, when we think about things like DevSecOps, oh my gosh, that is like crucial. So DevOps, you know, the thing that annoys me most in DevSecOps conversations is when people talk about shared responsibility and they translate that to mean that security is everybody's responsibility and, that, and full stop, right? The whole point of shared responsibility in DevOps is that everybody is responsible for the same set of goals. So that means if I'm gonna expect my developers to be responsible for the security of their software, I, as the security person, am responsible for making sure that they can deploy quickly at speed with efficiency and do all the things that they're required to do from a development perspective. If I want my SREs to be responsible for security, I've got to make sure that security is helping them to, to you know, implement software that's stable and not having you know, issues with availability because that's what they're worried about. And you know, so from a security perspective, I, every time I hear somebody or see somebody complaining like, oh, you know, executives don't listen or, you know, my users don't listen, whatever else, I stop them and I challenge them. And it, it angers some people when I do this, but it's like, okay, understood. Your executives aren't listening to you. So what are you doing wrong that you could improve and get them to listen? Because isn't it your job as a security person to communicate and to them in a way that's meaningful to them? so that they will understand what it is you want to do. That's the whole art of persuasive speech, okay? Like, go back to college, take that course in, in uh, you know, persuasive speech making. It, seriously, um, you have to speak to your audience in the terms that make sense to them. 
and don't you know, play off of their motivations, not yours. And that's, that's something I think we, we can really improve on in the security realms overall is how do we get better about communicating these things to the audience in a way that is meaningful to them and motivates them. And that's, that's a big challenge too, because when you look at the history of security and, and security departments, uh, it's usually populated with people who aren't very good communicators. Um, you know, you look at like red teams and some of the, the more, I guess, the, the top echelon of, of our groups. And a lot of us are on the spectrum. So communication is not one of those things that, that we're very good at. Um, and one of the things that's helped me was doing public speaking. Um, before, I, there's no way I would talk to a group of people. I was terrified. Um, but I was kind of thrown into it and, you know, it's helped, but there, there's little things that you can do to, to help out people to build. Yeah, really, you didn't really throw into it. You must've put yourself forward for public speaking. It wasn't like someone went, here's a stage, here's a stage and here's a load of people go like pushed you on the stage. You obviously actually, must have actually, agreed to it at some point. I agree. I agreed to speak to a small audience in, in uh, Aberdeen, Scotland at Robert Gordon university for like 40 people. And I did that and it was nerve wracking. Um, I think I drank three beers on stage. Um, it was, it was pretty bad. Uh, and then it blew up from that. And next thing I know, I have a, a crowd of like 400 people. And then I was really terrified. It was kind of accidental though. It wasn't one of those things where I planned, Oh, next year I'm going to become a public speaker. Um, but I'm kind of glad I did because we get a chance to communicate messages to influence. And I, I think that the biggest part is influencing the industry to make the right choices. Um, and so far, you know, even with, with ransomware, you know, that, that's a hot topic. Um, and in the States, you know, people are paying ransoms and, and, you know, it just, it sets a bad precedent, but we, you know, as an industry, we do make poor choices sometimes. Um, one thing that, that I always refer back to is my days growing up in the hacker culture, in the DEF CON groups, um, the way we communicated, uh, the structure, the hierarchical of the structure and, and the relationships we made, um, that's carried me so far into my career because all the people I, I got into those groups with are now CISOs or own their own company. Um, you know, like Robert Hansen and uh, Jeremiah Grossman, you know, they, they started White Hat and now they've moved on to something else. And it's like, you look at that and you see the progression. And the reason why is because they care about people, not the process. They care about the people. Uh, and that's what I try to try to push forward is that, you know, instead of looking at the problem, why not look at your solution first? Your solution are the people sitting in the chairs. Yeah. Then let's address the problem. And you, you, you touched on a few things there that are important to me too. And it, you know, one of them is that idea, you know, just how many neurodiverse folks seem to find their way in here. And I, I, I'm not going to speculate. I'm not an expert on why that is. I just know the numbers have borne that out that it's, you know, there's a high representation based on statistics from the general populace. But yeah, I mean, I remember those days too, being back in the undernet groups on IRC and, you know, I, I think back to how, how bad some of us were at, at communication just amongst ourselves. I mean, we would tear each other apart over things that, well, I mean, you kind of see the same thing happen on social media sometimes today, but, um, you know, and I think that that, that root of where we come from in security also kind of plays into why we do have some of those struggles and, you know, and not everybody is going to be a, a great orator and able to go in and have those conversations. And that's okay too but then understand who are your allies? Who can you work with in the organization 
that you can you can communicate one on one with effectively enough to have them go present what you need. Um, you know, and so it becomes a little bit different approach of leveraging that type of relationship and knowing how to do that. But it, it's still the same in a lot of respects because it is that idea of, okay, you know, I need to think differently. I can't just force what I believe onto somebody else and expect that they're going to react to it. Um, which I know that that has challenges, and for some people, legitimately, it just that that's not. That's a level of empathy that doesn't exist in everybody. So it, it can be challenging, but there are definitely ways that we can work within that structure. And I, I love that you brought up Jeremiah Grossman because he's a wonderful example of you know, how, how people can migrate from that very technical hacker culture into you know, not losing that. Like, I mean, I don't think Jeremiah Grossman has lost any of the you know, the skills that maybe he doesn't practice as much hands-on technical today as he used to, but, you know, he still has that backing, but you look at some of the conversations that he talks about, even just on Twitter. I mean, some of the, he and I have had some exchanges on Twitter about things that are really, you know, very high level political discussions, uh, very, you know, policy related things, because, he opened his mind to understanding more than just the technology and the, the technical aspects of threats and risks and things, but really looking at it from a business perspective, from a sociological perspective, those things that, you know, okay, that all comes into play when we're talking about a people issue where it's more than just the technology at this point. Yeah. And I think as we see technology become just increasingly every day ingrained in our just way of life like that's important to understand we, we can't we're not just sitting here defending mainframes and unix systems like we used to be way back in the day we are defending people's very lives here now we're seeing and in you know the last year and a half with the ransomware situations in particular we're seeing that that very solid crossover from the digital world to the physical world where pipelines are shutting down Hospitals are being shut down because of cybersecurity attacks. Absolutely. And, you know, I sat down with, with Jeremiah a couple of years ago out in uh, San Jose, and we were talking about the industry in general and, and where we fit into the bigger picture. And, uh, you know, he said that everybody who's been in the industry for a while and who has some sort of, you know, I guess, history in the industry um, usually fall on the spectrum somewhere. And funny enough, when, when I lived in London for the past couple of years and worked with the London Met Police, the, the, the kids that I dealt with in the cyber prevent program, 90% were on the spectrum. Um, and that, that tends to be, you know, the, the numbers are increasing naturally because I think that's the way human evolution is going. But the number of kids who have surpassed where we started mentally is increasing exponentially. And, and we're left with, you know, some of these CISOs and some of these directors going, okay, I don't know how to stop this attacker. That attacker is probably 11 years old. Um, so, I mean, we're seeing a lot of that, but I think as, as an industry, you know, we can go the right direction. Um, but I, one comment that was made not too long ago, especially it was on this podcast and it was someone from uh, black girls hack Tanisha. And she was talking about, the way the industry was formed with a bunch of middle-aged white guys with long beards who had the keys of the kingdom and didn't like to communicate. Uh, 
And so we're trying to build past that. We're making progress. It's slow progress, but we're making progress. Um, and the political side of it, don't even get me started there. Um, the political side of it kind of hinders things every once in a while. Um, you know, the, the privacy advocates have a real battle on their hands when it comes to uh, government oversight and government reach into your own privacy. Uh, and I think that's, that's going to be the new front to fight on as far as, as we go, as, as people that have some sort of influences, you know, protecting that privacy. Because not only do we have to fight off attackers, but we also have to fight for our ability to retain our identity, to retain what's important to us. And, you know, over the past 10 years or so, I lost all of that. I just recently was able to get an ID with my name on it from a state. I literally have not had an ID or an identification for three years uh, because U.S. government decided that that was not going to happen. Um, so, you know, there's there's a couple fronts we have to fight on. Um, but, I, you know, I think we're making strides and conversations like this really helps. Uh, the more people that, that get involved with these types of conversations, the more change that we can that we can make. Uh, but it takes everybody. It's not just a, a one person or two person thing. It's, it takes an industry. Um, so. Uh, Josh, you've been quiet over there. Do you have any questions for Alyssa? He's unmuting. Got to find that mute button first. I know. It's... Yeah, there you well, go. I got, I've got How to wake up my Bluetooth back. So if I lose it, I just hit the button. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt. It was amazing. I had so many things that I wanted to say, but I, um, I've just loved the last hour. This has been amazing. Um, how can people get started? So my big thing is helping people get launched. I'm very excited for your book. Please finish it. Um, I'll put it up there with Pentester Blueprint and what Jerry and Jax are building. And, um, but what's the one thing you would point people towards? I mean, oh, I hate to say this because it sounds hokey, and but networking is so important, honestly. I, I, can't, I cannot stress it enough. Um, I mean, it, it sounds like such a cheesy answer because everybody, of course, when they think about how do I get in, they want like, go get this training or do this lab or study this thing. And that, that's important too. But honestly, your network is so meaningful um, and it will always be like, that's the thing. Um, you know, I mean, case in point, the, the role that I have now came because I happen to have the right network and I happened to be connected with the right CISO who knew about the right job opportunity. And I, you know, we connected and talked about it and I landed this like, sorry, pretty damn awesome job that I really love. And, you know, it's, and getting started, it's the same thing. Like I, you know, I can cite a few examples of people who I've networked with who are trying to get started and who, you know, I, I, I gave them some pointers, helped them along, but in connecting with me, they got connected with other people, they got connected with mm. other people. And as that progressed, suddenly they found themselves a job. And, you know, that's the thing. And, and even just, even if someone doesn't connect you to a job, just that mm. exposure to different thoughts and ideas and things. And as you talk with these different people makes you so much more effective when you walk into a job interview or something like that. Um, you know, because you can speak to more than just the technical side, mm -hmm. like seeing how all this technical jargon and everything else, these exploits, how that all really applies in, you know, a, a business setting. Like if you could go in tomorrow 
and someone asked you about print nightmare if you went in and you cited to them the details of the the exploit and how it works and everything else would that be impressive sure but if you could go into that same organization and express to them what the risks are to the organization what you know the proper mitigation steps you know would be and how you would deploy that across a wide enterprise environment or where you might run into some challenges um, you know, things of that nature, or how you would prioritize systems that require print spoolers, you know, that's going to be far more effective. And you get that by having a network that you interact with. Now, the wonderful thing is we have this beautiful place where security decided to settle. It's called Twitter. And the cool thing about Twitter is that you, whoever you are, no matter what your experience level in cybersecurity, if it's zero, can go out there and interact directly with people like the aforementioned Jeremiah Grossman, Katie Masiris, uh, Leslie Carhart, you know, Ian Coldwater. I can spout a million names of really high profile people. You can go out there and have a direct conversation with them. And unlike trying to communicate with, say, you know, the president of the United States or something, you'll actually get responses back from those mm -hmm. people when you comment, when you, you know, engage in conversation on something that they tweeted about. That is so beneficial. Because just being a part of those conversations, you get those perspectives about not just, oh, here's how I'm going to gain RCE via, via print spooler, but here's how I'm, if I was in a company, I would leverage you know, different solutions to address that. Here's the challenges I would have to deal with. Or as a consultant or a pen tester, here's what that would mean or wouldn't mean to me in part of that pen test. Would it be something that I can usefully talk about? Would it, or is it just, it's great. It's one of those O days everyone knows about and it's not applicable. All of those things are the stuff that you learn not by doing labs or other things, but just by working with other people. So that's why the network is so crucial. Exactly. Like, that was, I was so hoping you would say that. And I was betting you would say that. Oh. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So Luke McComey, who goes by Pyro, I'm sure you've heard of him. Um, yeah. He, he and I have been friends for a long time. I met with DC 303 back in 2008. He came on the show, I guess, about a month or two ago. Um, I'm actually working with him now. So it's not only making those connections now when you first get into cyber, but later on down the road because you can collaborate. Um, you can build stuff together. Um, this whole podcast was built off of relationships, um, and that's, that's where we come from. But the, the hacker culture is, is different. Uh, you know, we, we tend to stick together even through the corporate bullshit. We're, we're still there. Um, you know, I can call on Jeremiah Robert at any time and be like, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And that helps me in my job. And, and it gives them some some way to give back to because for a lot of us, giving back is, is what keeps us going forward. Um, and that's what I try to try to preach as well. So, Josh comes from a very interesting background as we're talking about transitioning into cyber. Um, so Alyssa, like you, I went to college and I was, I, I was thrown into pre-med. I didn't know I was pre-med until they sent me a, a Lariat program and said, Hey, we want you to go to Australia for this medical program. And I'm like, medical, what the fuck? No, I, I don't want medical, but it's because I took all science courses, um, you know, biology, geology, all that stuff. And in the military, um, there wasn't quite the road to cyber at, the, at that point. I was one of the Navy's first CTNs, which is cyber warfare. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd already had hacking experience from years ago. 
So coming out of that environment as military, I literally took off my uniform, put on civilian clothes and went back to work in the same complex, the same compound that I left active duty. So Josh's job is to help people find their way into cyber from that transitioning veteran, you know, status. And to me, that's super important because those people are trained with that technical knowledge, especially the cryptos, Um, the guys who work in cryptology, some of the most brilliant people I've ever worked with. But when they got out, they, they had a hard time transferring or equating that experience to something real world. But now that we have the warfare rate, the cyber warfare rate, it's simple. And we're seeing a lot more of, you know, DOD, of active duty, leaving the front lines to come fight the cyber war. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how it relates to what we're talking about as far as getting into the industry and, and some of the problems that you see mm-hmm. bringing people from that very structured very hard line, you know, hierarchical system into something that's kind of chaotic and and not really black and white. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain level where they're fine. So the guys who are CTNs, um, like guys I'm about to work for, Jack Reedy and Neil Bridges, like when they got out, they just pivoted to, I've been doing this, now I can do it on the outside. What is the big, like the hard thing is the guys who are like, I fixed jets. Like I turned wrenches on fighter planes. Like, and there's not like a huge demand for that on the outside. Yeah. You could go like work on someone's Cessna, but like, there's not as much of a need for that. Um, and if you do a full career, you know, you come out at like 38 and you're just dog tired and you don't want to turn a wrench, but you do this, you like work the keyboard. Um, and you want to be inside and be air conditioned. Like, there's a lot of good reasons why you want to get into cybersecurity uh, and just job security and all sorts of good things. So there's this mess of like not understanding transferable skills, the supposed skills gap, and we'll call it just like that arbitrary gatekeeping. Um, I hate 8570. Like it's my life goal to smash that thing to the ground. Because I feel like it's what caused so many issues, like the DOD requiring all these certs in order to like prove qualification, which is exactly why it was made. Um, and then everyone else being like, well, I guess you're not qualified if you don't have the certs. Um, as opposed to how about we ask people the questions and we run our own aptitude tests and actually like put in some legwork and be not lazy. Um, and that's now we're having to clean up all those issues, right? So what we what we need is some streamlined ways of getting people the skills that they need and the connections that they need and a route in. Um, because when you get, I came from a weird way. The Air Force, again, made me into a cyber warfare guy and I've been playing off that. Um, I wasn't, I didn't, uh, come up with this cyber role on my own um like Alyssa, you you were a hacker you grew into that from software uh that was kind of the natural progression if you will for many people who are in the industry many people who are at that CISO uh that top level right now um and so the expectation is like well you guys go through all of this like be a software engineer be a network engineer be a system admin 
be help desk, learn those things, and then you'll grow into it just like we all did. But it doesn't need to be anymore. You've talked about it. You've both talked about this. Um, I've read it in many articles and seen it on many podcasts. If we can teach people the skills and they have the aptitude, then we can just get them in. So I've, uh, someone a couple of weeks ago called me a cyber evangelist. I'm trying to do what you all are trying to do and remind people, hey, you don't need, you don't need this giant long list of certs. You don't need all these other things. We need you to make connections. We need you to put out product and show that you have value, that you understand these things. Um, if I get a, um, man, one of my mentees last year, he was a munitions maintenance uh, NCO. And what they do is they uh, are in charge of making sure like weapons get onto the fighters and then like making sure that they get maintained properly and stored so that they don't deteriorate and work when they need to be. Um, this guy, he, he didn't want to do that anymore. He was ready to get out and just didn't see like, how does this at all transfer to any job? But he had worked the database. Um, there was a database in order to keep track of the maintenance, keep track of um, supplies, the inventory, uh, all of that. And that was up to him. And then he had to do systems admin to give other people rights, make sure that everything was managed properly. And it was like, hey, you've been doing all this like dirt work that everyone else says is you have to do as a civilian in order to get into cybersecurity. Like you understand how all this works, like how giving people the proper controls is important for them to then not you know, mess up things that are outside of theirs or on accident or on purpose. And it was like a, a light bulb went off for him. So a lot of my mentoring is helping people understand that. And then I've recently started Cyber Supply Drop, mostly because someone said, hey, here's a cert, find someone who needs it. Um, because I've been off saying all these things, repeating, I'm, I'm just a mirror. Josh, Josh, you, you don't, you don't hire people in India to message me on LinkedIn saying, Hey, I have this list of certs. Which one do you want to buy? Right? No, that's no. They're okay. also contacting me. No, that's me. Matt. I dropped your address. They're also <laughs> contacting me. Oh, like five today. Uh, but yeah, trying to get people to understand like they can get into this industry. So, yeah. Um, you know, the thing I tell people, and actually this is one of the exercises, it's in my book, mm -hmm. um, you know, is when you're trying to figure out what the transferable skills are, start with your resume or how you would write your resume for what you do. Just thinking traditionally, boom, here's the things I did. And then what I tell people is take that, now reword it in such a way that nobody could tell you what industry you were in but you still describe what you were doing, right? So, I mean, you know, if, uh, take that barista example. So if a barista, you know, I, I, you know, took orders and I made coffee. Okay, great. Well, let's, let's think about what that process was. Let's break that down into something that, you know, doesn't indicate what industry I worked in. Well, I took inputs from multiple sources. I translated those inputs into tasks. I prioritized those tasks to be done in the most efficient way possible. I executed with a high level of accuracy. All the while, I also had to plan maintenance activities and conduct those maintenance activities in given windows when available. And executed directly with stakeholders. 
Exactly. So none of that tells you what industry I was in at all. You couldn't tell me what job I had from that, but I just told you every skill that I have. Mm -hmm. And now take that and think about what I just said. Doesn't, isn't that exactly what you want a stock analyst to do? Oh yeah, exactly. 100%. So, yep. and, th and that's, that's the thing. It, it's so crucial that people start to understand that and not just people who are looking for jobs, but hiring managers mm -hmm. need to understand these things too. Recruiters need to understand these things. And that, cause that's where you get to the level of, all right, now I can see that this person has the right mindset, the right, you know, I guess, you know, how inner workings within their head to do this particular job. I mean, yep. if I asked a musician to do those same things, I'm a musician, so I'm not picking on musicians. Um, you know, if it's somebody who's been making a living as a musician, maybe that doesn't translate or it would translate into a different role within cybersecurity, right? Like they might have a more, they might be better suited toward, I don't know, reading like, you know, or digging into threat intel or something because of things I can't do the mental gyrations at the moment, but you know, they're going to fit somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So believe me when I say that, like you're getting to those core transferable skills is the thing that's going to help you find what actually tells you if that person's going to be successful or not. It's not because, oh, well, we use you know, Splunk and they've, they've worked in Splunk for five years. Right. Doesn't mean they're good at it. What if they were bad at it? Right, <laughs> exactly. My dad was a network engineer. I actually remember him studying for MCSE. Uh, <laughs> and he had all his Novell certs on the wall. Um, so, yeah, just because they have five or 10 years experience doing it like well why are they applying for this job exactly and i've seen people that apply for pen testing jobs who say that they have all this time and experience and, and you know they're great at what they do and i've written this script and that script but when you put them behind a keyboard and a vulnerable machine mm -hmm. they become somebody different and they they don't have that that level of creativity Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people, when they're writing resumes for a job, they tailor their resume for that specific position, yeah. not the environment, but for that specific position. Mm -hmm. And they embellish a lot. Um, and, you know, I've seen people that have lowballed their resume as well, where they don't put enough information on there, but they're brilliant people. They just oh. don't know how to communicate it. Uh, and really, the Navy did a really poor job when I came out uh, to transition to look for jobs you know they, they took you know aircraft mechanics they took navy seals and they, and they gave them a path and said okay this is what you do and this is how you write your resume they're still they doing to, that they get to me that. and they go we don't know what the fuck to do with you just you know i guess go find something and you know it, that's the type that that's the transition that, that we get as veterans sometimes we yeah. get thrown out with very little information and very little contacts mm -hmm. so uh, the cool thing about this industry is that you know, people like me, people like you, people like Alyssa and Ryan and Trammy and Amy um, get to be mentors. And that's mm -hmm. really awesome. So I spoke to a group of people from Caps Lock, um, people who are trying to get into cybersecurity and telling them what I went through and, and, and my path. And I don't think it's so much as learning what that person knows, but learning their experience. Mm -hmm. if, you can, if you can figure out where your path is and where your experience lies, that makes for a solid position that you're going to land. Mm -hmm. um, and I've gone through, I don't know how many jobs, you know, I, I go help a startup get up off the ground. I move on to the next one, or I go to, you know, build a sock and I'm off to the next one. But every stop that I've made, I've learned something. 
And it's because of the people in their past. And I listen to everything they say, you know, I suck all that in and I'm, I'm trying to learn from their hurdles and their dilemmas. Mm-hmm. What got, what got them past it? What, what was their passion? What was it that clicked that said, it doesn't matter how difficult this is. I'm going to push through it. And that's, to me, it's, it's, it's the passion for the job. You know, I can take a pen tester who, you know, got some bullshit CEH and doesn't really know anything and doesn't have a passion. He just wants the money. And a lot of these kids, their first question is, what kind of car do you drive? Does it fucking matter? I can't drive a car because I have epilepsy. So no car. Yes. Yeah. So I'm not going to tell you how much I make, but that's what they want to know. They want to know, how can I get to six figures tomorrow? Instead of what can I do to, to benefit everybody else? Because it's going to come back to me. And that, that's kind of where my next question goes. Alyssa, what is your passion? What, what keeps you moving in the same direction you're going? I have lots of passions. But honestly, I think what keeps me going is I have a passion for this industry in general. Like I love... Because again, I go back to my roots, you know, hacker communities on, you know, IRC and stuff. And, you know, I love the people that I've interacted with through all of that, even the ones that I at the time wanted to strangle, (laughs) you know, like I, I still, I have a, I have a passion for this community. And I, and this is something, you know, with the, the whole blow up with EC or two blow ups with EC council that I stress to their CEO. It's like, look, I love this industry. And if you do something that's going to harm it, you, you've now got a problem with me because I will not, you know, so if you're exploiting us for dollars, which I believe some of the certification companies do, including one that I just mentioned, you know, if if you're exploiting us for money and you're not here to make the community better, you have no business being here. Mm -hmm. And it's the same for people. And so you mentioned a couple things that are really important to me is I, so I, I, my goal is to try to build people up. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm also a very firm believer that, you know, you need to bring, you know, the, the whole, what's the cliche, uh, rising tide raises all ships kind of thing. It's reality. Mm-hmm. I was just talking about this. We were on a, a chat on uh, Diana initiative today, and I was just talking about this with uh, Doug Rush. You know, the, I, there are a couple people I know who two years ago had like a really strong trajectory going, like they were really popular in the industry. They were really getting a lot of attention from people. They were doing a lot of talks. They were you know, getting asked to do different things. And what I saw with them was while all this was going on, they got really selfish. They're only, you know, the only thing you ever saw them tweet about was their own stuff. You didn't see them going to other people's talks. You didn't see them, you know, doing any of that kind of thing. You didn't see them propping others up. Well, what's happened in the last, you know, six months to a year for these two is I've watched them plateau Mm. and now they're in a decline. And so it's like, Mm. okay, if you can't do the nice thing, the good thing, the right thing, because it's the right thing to do, understand that raising others has benefit for you. Like Mm -hmm. if, if, if you're, you know, you can't get beyond that selfishness, fine, but understand that even then just doing the right things is going to raise you up and make you better. You spend more energy trying to hold people down than it takes to raise people up. So, you know, I think within our community, that's gotta be what we do. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes us better as a community because it raise, it does literally raise us all up and I've seen it firsthand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, people ask me, 
Um, you know, what did I, you know, how did I, how did I get so many followers on Twitter? I hate that question. Um, sorry if you've asked it. I understand. How many do you have? What's how that? Many, how many do you have? Uh, 40. 5,000. Well, I don't even know. I don't, this is it. I don't really. Amazing amount. 46,000, I think. Um, or somewhere in that ballpark. But the, the, the point is I never set out to get a lot of followers. That was never my intention. Mm-hmm. I got active on Twitter mostly because I was getting more active in the speaking scene and I knew Twitter would be a great place to be able to, you know, share updates about my upcoming talks, whatever. Mm-hmm. Plus I was literally, this is why I created a Twitter account in the first place. I was seeing everybody else in their talks, you know, at the end, you get to the end and they had their Twitter handle there. Yeah. Like, okay, I should probably do that too, you know? And it just, over time, I mean, it was, I, I hate to say it was by accident, but it kind of was, it just, I, I, people kept following me and I kept hearing feedback on what I was doing and people liked what I was doing. And I don't do what I do to try to get more followers or anything else. I do what I do because I love this community. Mm-hmm. I want to see us get better in terms of cybersecurity. I've been in this culture my you know entire adult life for sure. And obviously prior to that, So that's where my passion lies. I love the hell out of new technology. I love getting to see what's out there. I love playing with the new cool things and taking it apart, just like I did when I was four, you know, and that's never gone away. And I think that's the same for a lot of us. Um, I do have that frustration. What's that? What's the latest toy you took apart? Oh God, I honestly haven't done, um, I'm trying to think, what have I, I mean, does my, do my smokers count? You all, if you guys know yeah. on Twitter, I'm like big in barbecue. Um, so I may have kind of played around with some of the, the Bluetooth interface to, I, I bought a pellet smoker now, the third one I have, third I smoker I have. and um, I did play a bit with the Bluetooth interface on that. I pulled out the, you know, the software to find radio and, and was messing around <laughs> in, in Bluetooth a little bit, but uh, you know, just because I mean, it's going to be in my house. Your, I want to know. Um, and it, yeah, it was, it was what you would expect from, you know, a, a typical Bluetooth uh, interface. Um, I mean, the computer I'm using right now to talk to you has a really nice graphics rig on it because I was using it last year to generate deep fakes. Um, you know, so stuff like that. I don't get to do as much of it as I used to, which is too bad. But, you know, anything I get, I research the heck out of it. Research being, I Google it. Uh, you know, but no, I go out and I, I try to read up on understanding different technologies I play with. I mean, even if I'm going to go buy like a new monitor or something, mm-hmm. you know, I want to understand what, what's latest and greatest in the, these the new super wides and, you know, what should I be looking for? What's the right thing? It's, that's just the uh, way Eli- my mind works. Alyssa, Emily's asked, um, when you take things apart, is there a, requir- is there a requirement for it still to work again at the end? She said she's asking for a friend. <laughs> That's generally the goal. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, definitely there are plenty of things I take apart where you've got like an extra screw or something after the fact, and you're like, <laughs> eh, it's, it's working. I guess that screw wasn't needed. Um, I mean, everything from laptops to, you know, whatever, but, uh, it's what Amazon Prime's for, right? Uh, this doesn't work anymore. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I don't care as much. Like, yeah, if I bought something just for the sake of taking it apart, Sure. Then I don't care so much if it works afterwards, if I was just trying to figure it out. But usually if I'm taking it apart, I do want it to work at the end because it's something I bought for a reason. And also I'm usually taking it apart because I want to know how it works. 
So if it ends yeah. up not working at the end, that kind of limits the learning how it works kind of thing a little and bit. That, so that goes back to the culture too. I mean, from way back when, I'm sure you remember like uh, little professor calculators um, that you would put in the, the, the equation, it would speak it and give you the solution. Well, that was my first thing to take apart was taking it apart and then, you know, look at the circuitry and how it interpreted the numbers and got to say some really funky stuff. And my parents didn't really appreciate that, but it was my first attempt. But the, the biggest thing I think I've taken apart in that same mentality of I want to know how exactly how this works was my pacemaker. When they put the pacemaker in and they said, oh, here you go. This is going to keep your heart beating. And I said, hmm, wait a minute, I need to take a look at this because you give me a device that I put on my chest and it's supposed to read my pacemaker. Why is it reading it and how is it reading it? Um, I did a talk with uh, her last name is Ali, Nina Ali, uh, biohacker from DEF CON. And we were talking about the, the bio devices and how that's like the next target. Um, and to realize that this device that keeps me alive is actually, you know, emitting Bluetooth signals is frightening. And so, I mean, it's, I tell people that that's part of the passion and that's what makes us who we are is we look at technology and figure out how it works and how can we make it better. Can we like or, connect it with our phone and like play tunes? No. Oh, I, my, my mother has, um, uh, she's got the diabetes. So she's got the, the blood sugar monitor and it's the same thing. Like she's like, I need to get a new phone cause I'm getting this new monitor and it needs to have Bluetooth. I'm like, whoa. You know, obviously I'm not going to start hacking my mom um, as much as I would love to play around with that. But yeah, I mean, and honestly, I, I'm not going to lie either. This, this conversation almost makes me sad a little bit because I'm, I'm still not over the whole, I'm not over Barnaby Jack, you know, I'm, I'm still feeling the spirit of, of him in this conversation. Um, but, you know, I, and the work that he did and it's, it's funny because he was, I mean, how many years ago was that now that, you know, he was out there championing this, like, look, these things are really damn scary. Mm -hmm. And thankfully the FDA listened up a bit. It's a little better, but you know, there's still plenty of problems. I mean, um, who was at Medtronic just had to recall all of those devices because they couldn't even, it wasn't even that they knew they were vulnerable. They didn't even know if they were vulnerable or not because they couldn't tell whether or not they had you know, this particular open source package in them. And it's like, so you hear that it's like, how are we still here? Shocking. With, it's shocking. Yeah. I mean, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I hear that and it's, again, it's, you know, sometimes it's driven by curiosity. Sometimes it's driven by just survival instincts and sometimes it's somewhere in between. Yeah. And the funny thing too, is, you know, you touched on something, you know, as far as Barnaby Jack goes and, and, you know, you look at some of the people that we've lost in the past year or so. Um, Dan Kaminsky was such a huge, huge figure when it came to DNS. Yeah. Um, if it wasn't for Dan, the, the internet probably would not function properly right now. Um, people like that, that we've lost that huge treasure trove of knowledge uh, just in one fell sweep. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at Aaron Schwartz, you know, just people like that. It's just, you know, they come into the industry, they make such big waves and they burn so bright, but they burn out so fast. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another thing that people need to, to realize when coming into the industry as newcomers is that it's really easy to burn yourself out. Um, I know for me, I have to take time and, and I, 
you know, have other things that I do to get my mind off of stuff. Uh, because if you don't, I'll work myself to death. I'll work 24 hours a day. And, but to me, it's not work. To me, it's a passion. You know, if I have a tablet or a phone, I'm going to hack it just to see what I can do with it. And I don't care if it takes me till four o'clock in the morning and I'll get up at six and go back to work. Um, and that's kind of, you know, I started getting into candle making and, and meditation and stuff like that. You know, the hippie stuff, because it actually works. Um, and Ryan shaking his head. Yes, I know you're hippie. And, but it, it works. It, it helps create that balance. And I think, you know, we've touched on certifications. We've touched on knowledge share and transitioning. But I, I think what's even more important is balance. Because once you get into the industry, it's so easy to get spun up so fast and burn out. And so I, I tell the people that work for me, I've got 16 analysts that work in the SOC and they're so hungry for knowledge, but I tell them, Hey, look, you have the rest of your life. Don't spin your wheels. Now learn stuff, be passionate about it, but don't burn yourself out. Take a break, go out into nature. You know, it's still there. What, what little's left is still there. You know, go out and do some paddle boarding or surfing or whatever you play music. And that's another thing that, that a lot of people that are pen testers and hackers tend to have in common is that, we have a, a creative streak, whether it be art, painting, uh, music, whatever. We actually have a music label that's starting with The Haunted Hacker. Um, we have a couple DJs in a group that we're putting together mixes. Just fun stuff, you know, to get your mind out of that, that cybersecurity mindset. And I think that's really important. So Alyssa, how do you deal with burnout? How, how, do, you, how do you balance your speaking, your, your, your business life, and just your life in the industry in general? Um, wow. So this is a multifaceted question. So first of all, um, you see it back here. Uh, you know, I do, um, hobbies are great, like for managing burnout, whenever, right. Um, having that thing, like you're talking about, uh, you know, last year during pandemic, I got out and I did a bunch of hiking and, you know, so physical fitness in general for me is kind of important. Um, I'm also a soccer referee. So, uh, you know, those are things, um, that, you know, it's just whatever I can do to, yeah, that has nothing to do with security. Um, and especially when it's something that completely disconnects me from security for a time, like, you know, I mean, if I go hiking, I'm out on trails where you're not getting cell service. So, you know, that's wonderful. If I'm refereeing a soccer match, I obviously don't have my cell phone with me out on the field. So, you know, that's at least, you know, an hour and a half to two hours of time that I'm just, you know, out, you know, disconnected from the world. And the physical fitness side of it, of course, is good too. I mean, there's, there's all the discussion about what just being physically active can do for, you know, your mental health. Um, but at the same time, I'll, I'll admit, I'm not great at it, um, at, at managing burnout. Uh, last year in particular, the pandemic and all these virtual conferences, it, it got bad. I mean, there were days that I had three or even four events in one day, which, you know, you think, oh, well, it's, it's a virtual conference. So it's like doing a conference call. No, 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 no. It is nothing like that. And it is draining. I had a couple of those days. There's one in particular. I remember I did two conference talks, a webinar and a live stream all in the same day. And, you know, by the end of it, I mean, I was so exhausted. I actually broke down in tears. It was just like, I can't do anymore. What am I doing? And you look at my calendar from last year on my website of the speaking engagements, which doesn't include like webinars and podcasts and other things that I did. And I mean, I look at that and I look back on it now. I'm like, what the hell was I doing? Alyssa, so, please don't 
Please don't break down after this podcast, by the way. <laughs> no, no, we're good today. Um, today was good. I mean, this was, I did a little bit of Diana earlier, but that was, that was very relaxing. But we were talking about this exact same topic during some of that. And, you know, I mean, so it, it really does have to be that conscious effort to break away and do something else, anything else. Even if it's just binging on Netflix for a while or something, you know, whatever it is, just find that time where you can disconnect because we're all so damn passionate about this stuff. We could, I could sit in this office all night and dig into different things and I know it'll happen. By the time, you know, it'll get to be midnight, 1, 2 a.m. And I'll be like, oh, I'm starting to feel tired now. And suddenly, you know, the next day, I, I maybe sleep for five, six hours again the next day and I feel absolutely awful. And it's, it's not that like physically I did anything wrong to my body, but just my brain is not there. And so then the next day I'm useless. And that, I mean, that builds up over time. So what I've found is just the ways that things that I can commit to, and that's the big thing is the commitment side, right? You got to commit to doing it and, you know, find those things and leverage them. So soccer is a great one because once I accept a game assignment, I'm locked into that. That's my commitment. I have to be there. I have to be at that field at a certain time and I need to officiate that game. So I know for sure that that's going to pull me away. I'm not going to be able to make an excuse. Oh, there's this critical call at work I'm going to take or whatever. No, that's my personal time I'm taking. Um, you know, and, and so even with work, sometimes it's just committing to when you're going to have time away, putting blocks on your calendar where you're not going to have meetings. Um, by the way, really cool, quick hack here. Um, I know a lot of people have taken to putting like blocks on your calendar to have time to focus on things. Mark it as out of office rather than marking it as busy. People mm. will respect out of office more so than they will respect the fact that it says you're busy. They'll schedule stuff on top of a busy slot, but if they mm -hmm. see you're out, you're marked as out of office, they'll find a different time. So, so there you go. One helpful hint for you. Mm -hmm. That's pretty awesome. So on a, on a personal note, and this has happened to me quite a few times, but on a personal note, when I first started speaking and even into, I guess, as far as last year, um, you're right, the pandemic was, was brutal for speaking and recording talks and, and making sure that everything gets done and multiple talks a day. Um, it almost got to the point where I felt like a freak in a freak show. You know, people pulling me on the stage. Hey, this is this guy. And it's just like, you know, let me tell my story and, and don't present me as some rarity. You know, I'm not a rarity, you know, but I don't know if other speakers feel that way. Um, but I definitely felt like I was in a circus at one point when I first started because I was being drugged from venue to venue to venue and telling the same story over and over again. But it was like, I don't know. It, I felt like the elephant man almost. You, it depends you, if you're in a niche though, doesn't it? Like I get asked to talk about, well, because I have no technical knowledge whatsoever, I can talk about diversity in cybersecurity instead because I'm a girl. Um, and I get people messaging me on LinkedIn all the time, like, oh, can you come and talk at this women in tech event? Because you're a woman that's in tech. And I'm like, what about what? Like, because women in tech just talking about tech, right? <laughs> that's No, that's legit. And so to that point, that happens way too much. Um, if you're a woman, if you're a, uh, you know, if you're black, if you're Hispanic, if you're LGBT, if you're any of these underrepresented groups, that happens a ton. 
And in fact, that's a, um, I was talking, Keck Cosgrove, I'm not sure if that name rings a bell to folks, but she and I were talking on Twitter a while back about just the desire to, you know, the fact that we need women on stage. And so we were talking about women at the time, like you need women on stage talking tech stuff. And it led me to my new rule now um, going forward is that I will not do any form of diversity panel unless two conditions are met. One, if I'm speaking on a diversity panel, I better, I and everyone else on that panel better also be giving technical talks somewhere in that conference. That's step one, because I am not gonna allow myself to become known as this niche thing that you want me to be known as. The mm -hmm. second is that better be a diverse damn panel. The last panel I did that didn't meet this, um, this set of rules, it was right before I implemented this it, and it kind of helped encourage it was it was four white women, all in executive positions, myself included, talking about, you know, women in cybersecurity. And I'm sitting there looking at, I was like actually embarrassed to be on the panel to the point that I didn't advertise it on my socials at all, because I'm embarrassed to sit here and say, okay, there's four white women here talking about diversity. What the hell do we know about the experiences of people who come from Hispanic backgrounds, who come from African backgrounds, who come from Caribbean backgrounds, all of the other, we don't know that life. But I think we're we all very privileged. And this is, this is a terrible panel to be on. As part, so as part of the AU awards, we got criticism. So the you know the artificially intelligent awards that me, Lisa, and Holly ran, we got quite a lot of criticism because we were three blonde women running it. But that was kind of the point because they were called the AU awards because we're all artificially unintelligent because we dyed our hair blonde. Um, but when you looked at actually who we are as people, we are actually all very diverse. We might not be racially diverse, but we're all like one of us was in the military, one of us is gay, one of us is a single mom. One of us was in the police, blah, blah. so there's, there's, I think there's different types of diversity. So I think it's a bit, I don't know. I think it's difficult to say that you you, you demand that there's there's different racial representation on a bot on a on a panel. But I mean, I get like you should like if all white women, if you're talking about diversity in general in tech, then yeah, I would expect at least oh. one person. I think it's that. less of the color and ethnicity. I think it's more of the struggle and the process. I, I don't oh. think. Yeah, I was going to point out, I think you actually might have made an assumption. I hope I didn't say this because if I did, I misspoke. Um, or maybe there was an assumption made that I didn't say. But that was a continuous statement of white women who are all in executive positions with privileged backgrounds. And I think I left out the privileged backgrounds part, but that was what drove me nuts. Mm. Like I, for white women, you're right. I a thousand percent agree. If someone came from, you know, a, a a background where they they overcame poverty or something and someone else came out of the military and someone else you know some of that is still exceptionally valuable discussion and that's diversity what bothered me here was that we were all you know in high level positions and unfortunately it showed right i mean mm -hmm. that was the big thing was when we went through that we had a um we had a prep call for it and kind of talked about what the questions were going to be and what our answers were going to be and the, the answers i was hearing i was just like Oh my God, this is this is embarrassing. I, I really wish I wasn't on this panel now because I, I think what what I'm hearing here screams of women who know one perspective on things 
and don't see the others. And it, it was, it was bothersome. Um, so yeah, I apologize. That makes a little I mean, sense. It seemed no, like, that makes a lot like of sense. my rule is it's gotta be racially diverse or no. something visually diverse, but not my, not my meaning at all. I mean, it, it's gotta be diverse in the sense. I mean, I would like to see that too. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well. that's definitely important to me, but there definitely has to be some level of diversity there, uh, of people's backgrounds and it, it better be bringing, you know, unique perspectives. So if it's all CEOs, unless it's a CEO panel, um, you know, specifically, but you don't need all CEOs talking about women in cybersecurity. What about that, you know, entry-level person who just got their first job? I want to hear what she's got to say. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. So I keep going back to Tanisha and Black Girls Hack, but when you talk about diversity, I have never met anybody or an organization that truly believes in diversity as much as Black Girls Hack. So not only do they focus on you know, black girls and in, in that community, but they also look at those people in that community that can't afford to get certification, can't afford to go to school, but they're still brilliant minds. And if we cut them out, then we lose. And so to me, that that's true diversity, diversity where they don't have the capability to, you know, they don't have the financial means to get what we have, but yet here's some brilliant minds coming through that program that are coming out going into cybersecurity as level two analyst or level three analyst. And to me, that's amazing. But as a speaker, you know, when, I guess when I first started, it, it was coined as, you know, inside the mind of a hacker, they, they focused on the hacker part. And I did that for a year. And I got to the point where I was like, but I'm more than just a hacker. Like I have other attributes. It's not just that diversity, I think is important as well. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those areas I'm always careful of, right? When we say something like diversity of thought, because that's that's what we're looking for. Unfortunately, where that bothers me is some people tend to use that as a dog whistle. Yeah. Um, they say diversity of thought, and what they really mean is that you know um, it's okay for me to exclude you know uh, underrepresented demographics because I'm going to have this diversity of thought, and that's what mm. I'm hiring for. But the reality is, okay, yeah, you do need diversity of thought. That's what we're looking for. That's exactly what we want. But much of that only comes from getting people with very diverse backgrounds, which oftentimes requires racial diversity, ethnic diversity, uh, you know, diversity in gender and sexuality and all these other things. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's so we have to recognize that you cannot stand up for white cis hetero males and say that they can talk about the perspective of growing up black in this country or growing up, you know, uh, as LGBT or whatever, you know, you mm-hmm. have to, you I, have, I was, to have gonna, that yeah. extra diversity. I was on a panel the other day and there was, um, so there's me and two, I think there's three blokes on it. And I turned up and I was like, oh, hey, thanks for inviting me at last minute as your token lady, like taking the piss. I was honestly taking the piss and they were like, well, if we wanted to have more women, we, we, like, we couldn't find any more girls, to be on it. I was like, I could literally have filled this entire cybersecurity festival with women that would have been able to talk about every topic. So don't, like, I know you were saying it as a joke, but like, don't even go there. Like, I have so many women in cyber that I are clever I enough. their OSINT abilities at that point. Like, yeah. really? You couldn't find any more? <laughs> <laughs> there was just me who works in sales. Like, I'm, I'm the only person in cyber you could think of. <laughs> but to, to be fair, to be fair. So we have a future guest coming on, I guess, in a month or so. And she had a really bad uh, incident when it came to one of the conferences. 
and a guy got drunk and fondled her like, you know, in the pool or whatever and sexually harassed her. And that's another big problem that we have in cybersecurity is, yes, we don't have enough females and we don't have enough of that point of view. And I think it takes both male and female points of view and, and thinking processes to create a team. Um, but the problem is, is when we get females in the industry, they're treated differently. And uh, it all goes back to that mentality of the old middle-aged white guy with a long beard who establishes community. And the story that this person tells was shocking because the, the conference organizer reached out to her and said, hey, look what happened. He, she told him and the guy was blacklisted, but only blacklisted for one year. So she goes back to the conference, sees that guy again and throws a fit and says, hey, look, why is he here? You know, he sexually harassed me. And they said, well, it's because he's been a leader in this, in this industry and in this conference since the 90s. Does that fucking matter? I mean, really? Like, do we lose the human aspect because of clout or name or fame? Yeah. I, and honestly, I think if you person, talk, to, you talk to women who've been to at least a conference or multiple conferences, I would be willing to bet your numbers are somewhere to 60 to 80% who've experienced something similar as far as some form of harassment or whatnot. I mean, I've got my stories. I know plenty of other women who do too. Um, sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's just verbal. Um, for me, my personal experiences have been both. You know, I've been grabbed. I've been groped. I've been, you know, cornered, uh, you know, different things that happen. And it's, it, that's an unfortunate, you know, just kind of the, 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 what I would say toxic behaviors that happen in general is, is really sick. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I can only speculate on where it comes from. I think there's probably a number of different causes, but some of it is back to your, your, your mention of feeling kind of like the, the, the freak show, if you will, or whatever. Hmm. You know, I, when you are talking about an industry that's been traditionally, you know, very dominated by men still is, mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, ISC squared's, you know, liberal estimates are what 20%. And I, some of what they were including as cybersecurity roles leave you wondering. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm, and this is not a, a slight on this title, but you know, there are people included in there who are administrative assistants to cyber, to like CISOs. That's not really a cybersecurity role in my estimation. Mm -hmm. um, but you look at that. So, okay, 20%, let's say it's maybe more like 18 or 15. When you have an industry like that, those people that are in that 15% become a certain level of novelty, mm -hmm. right? Um, and sadly, I, cybersecurity isn't the only place I see this. I mentioned being a soccer referee. The same thing happens there. There are, it's such a large percentage of referees who are male. And so when I go to like these regional tournaments and things, and it, it's, a, it's a known problem. In fact, to the point that at least the regional tournaments I used to go to, they would actually have a separate men's only session where they sat down with the male referees and told them, look, you need to learn how to freaking behave. This is what we expect of you. You know, you need to treat all referees with respect. And that includes their bodily autonomy, you know, consent, all of those things. Um, and it, you know, what I experienced in that realm was just seeing that it was like such a novelty that it was like these, these men would actually behave in ways that like they would never even consider behaving in general public. 
Mm-hmm. Like it was really strange how that happens. Like you, you could, I, there were people that I knew who were, you know, like I knew what they were like in everyday life who got in trouble because they were, you know, too handsy or they were, you know, just wouldn't leave a, a female referee alone and, you know, just kept hitting on her, things like that after she's telling them, no, all the, all the things. And it's like, it, it's weird when you get in that environment. So it, it, it's a hard problem to fix because of course you have to normalize seeing women mm-hmm. in those spaces, but the more women you put in those spaces, the more they get treated poorly and they leave. Is that, yes. There's a new initiative started in the UK called Respect Insecurity, um, which is trying to like, sorry, it's a fly there, um, which, is trying to, um, which is trying to get companies to kind of sign a pledge and say that, you know, if any of their employees have got found like exhibiting any of these behaviors, or um or stuff like that like they'll make us take a stand against it so that i think they're releasing like they're, they're launching is stay is it on the 22nd of july they're launching yep yeah actually i heard from rick ferguson about exactly that um he asked if i could have my organization take a look and potentially sign on to the pledge too and i, I think that's great i mean that's that's the kind of thing we need to see more of is mm-hmm. You have to address it at all levels. It's, you know, you can address it from the ground up, but you got to also address it at an organizational level and let organizations be an active ally in this too and, and drive proper behaviors. Yeah, before we can solve the cybersecurity problem, we first have to solve our own internal problems. Mm-hmm. You know, because when you have behaviors like this going on, it takes away from the entire effort. Um, so I want to end this thing on a, on a positive note. Um, so Alyssa, if you were to interview one person in cybersecurity that you respect and that, that you find really interesting, who would that be? We're just trying to find someone that will, will come on the show, basically. So, you know, oh you my want- God, I <laughs> a laundry list of people. Oh boy, who do I even? I've I mean, actually got a pen and paper at the ready, so I will write well, them Let me just start spitting out names. I mean, there are so many yes, people yes, who I, I absolutely love and adore in this space. Um, you know, I mean, one that comes right to mind is Gabrielle Hempel, um, Gab Smash on Twitter. Uh, she is mm-hmm. absolutely amazing. I, I love her to death. Um, boy, I mean, I, geez, I can think of so many right now. I'm actually just trying to like put them into. So, so if, if we got Gab Smash, would you come back and interview her? Absolutely. Are you kidding me? I'd be honored to. Done. Sold. Um, another one, um, <laughs> Stefan Sec who is on, uh, who gave a keynote today at uh, Diana Initiative. She is amazing. If you don't know her yet, definitely get, uh, that's her handle, Steph Ansek. Um, I'm, I don't want to butcher her last name, so I'm not going to try. Obviously, her first name's Stephanie. Um, and I'll give you one more, uh, Meryl Vernon. Um, she's an up-and-comer in cybersecurity space. She, I just got to meet her finally in person at Wild West Hacking Fest out in Reno, Nevada, uh, last month. Um, she's got a really amazing story too. Uh, so those are three that like would be incredible. And yeah, if, I mean, hell, I would love to come back and, and interview any one of them because they're awesome. all just amazing folks. We'll, we'll definitely do that. And, and I want to thank you personally for, for coming on the show. Um, I know that I reached out earlier and, and we got kind of crossed wires and you couldn't connect and, and Amy put us in, in touch with each other, but I really appreciate you taking the time and, and coming on the show. And, and uh, you know, I look forward to, you know, maybe collaborating down the road and, and doing something together. I think it'd be good. 
Um, and I want to thank everybody else for showing up tonight. Um, this has been a really special podcast. And, uh, you know, this will be broadcast on TechStrong TV um, probably in two weeks. Uh, but, yeah, I think, we, I think we touched on some really good topics that really make the industry what it is and what it shouldn't be. Um, and I think that we've come to some conclusions of what needs to happen. Uh, but with that, I'm going to go ahead and close it out. Alyssa, Josh, thank you guys. Um, Josh, thank you. please come back and, oh, yeah. you know, let, let's all stay connected and, and keep moving forward as a group. I think this is, I think this is a good step in the right direction. Uh, so until next Saturday, I'll see you guys then. And you're all welcome to come back. Alyssa, if you want to drop into the Discord or if you want to come back to the next podcast, absolutely, you're welcome. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send you the link to the discord and, and all of our videos and stuff. And, you know, it was just, it, this is a really good environment. And, you know, as, as a haunted hacker group, like we try to get back to industry and like try to give, you know, a little bit of what we have to other people. So I think this is, this has been a great podcast. So I will see you guys next week. And uh, thanks again. Bye guys. See you guys. Okay, Cheers. Everybody.